0: Christian do you sometimes feel uh, despondent abandoned and your your faith in Jesus Christ in need of encouragement are you sometimes sad you try to put on a brave face a smiling face but inside you're in pain do you ever experience doubt are there times when your faith needs Renewal and fortification. Are there moments in your Christian pilgrimage when Satan attacks, looking to make a shipwreck of your faith? Of course, uh, the Christian life is fraught with difficulties, which which is why we need to receive real encouragement from God's word the way God intends his people to be encouraged from the Holy Scriptures, properly interpreted and properly applied. But if there was ever a verse consistently taken out of context, slapped onto refrigerator magnets and sewed onto grandmother's throw pillows, if there was ever a Christian aphorism, a platitude, a cliché used with the best of intentions to really encourage God's people, yet misapplied time and again in the broader evangelical culture, then that verse is John 14, 1, the opening verse of our passage today. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus says brothers and sisters, there is so much that's good in that verse. So much that's helpful. So much our Lord intends to provide real encouragement to his covenant people, but it must, must, must be linked to the gospel just as Jesus does here. Real encouragement for the Christian life is found in what God has accomplished, in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. And in consequence, will accomplish in the new heavens and new earth. It's not found in decontextualized verses, blithely parroted. That won't do the Christian a lick of spiritual good. And the older I get, the longer I'm a pastor, the more I see this, So much mental anguish and suffering in the Christian experience is tied to false expectations. And Satan exploits those false expectations with great success. Bad theology is a cruel, cruel taskmaster. So much mental anguish and suffering in the Christian's experience is tied to false expectations. On the evening before Jesus is crucified, the apostles are discouraged. Why is that? We saw it last week. Because who Jesus is and the gospel itself isn't at all clear to them. So this is precisely what Jesus teaches on his last evening with them. But... In the context of Jesus' farewell discourse, chapters 14 through 16 of John's Gospel, our Lord's encouragement to the disciples is designed to meet a very specific situation. Sure, we may all, all of us, sometimes feel despondent and abandoned and need the encouragement that Jesus is indeed divine. He is the divine, good, sovereign whom we can trust. We all need that. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Amen to that. But the situation here in these three chapters, this is unique. This particular situation we're reading of now, this is unrepeatable. Because what's occasioned the farewell discourse, the context, is Jesus' impending return to the glory that he shared with the Father from eternity past via the cross. Yes, Jesus is physically departing from his disciples. But even so, the disciples mustn't let their hearts be troubled. Jesus' departure, again, via the cross, resurrection, ascension to heaven, is for their advantage. It secures their future destiny. But that's the very thing that these disciples don't understand, which is why they're miserable. They're feeling abandoned. Their hearts are troubled. What they need now is further theological education, instruction, which Jesus gives three chapters worth, and then he prays for them. And and yes, these men need that, that general exhortation to trust in God and to trust in Jesus, just as we all do. But what they really need is a more detailed explanation of the significance of the events about to take place. Specifically, Jesus' death, resurrection, exaltation, his glorification, and then the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. All of which is going to happen in the next 50 days. And so, Jesus lovingly and patiently explains these things to the disciples to refresh and to fortify their faith. He preaches, brothers and sisters, the gospel to them. He preaches the gospel to them. And in doing so, our Lord preaches the gospel to us. If you look at your bulletin, you can see at the very top, I start off with a warning. This is from Don Carson. Jesus' farewell discourse, and again, that's chapters 14 through 16, must not be treated simplistically as nothing more than Christian comfort. Designed to console defeated saints. I'm calling that the refrigerator magnet throw pillow fallacy. Don't do that. Rather, it is first and foremost an exposition of the significance of Jesus going away to his father via the cross. It is elemental. It is primary, basic theology. And only as such does it offer then encouragement and consolation. Christian, do you want your faith to be renewed and fortified? Do you want your faith to be triumphant? Do you want a tranquil spirit, a tranquility of spirit, not dependent upon your circumstances in life? Then you need to cultivate a deep understanding of the gospel. You need to cultivate a deep understanding of the historical and redemptive structure of the Christian faith. And by God's grace, our text today can help. So look at point number one in your bulletins. Some truths Jesus' followers must believe. If our faith is to be triumphant and our spirits tranquil, there are three. Jesus is going away to his Father's spacious house, heaven, to prepare a place for his followers. Number two, Jesus is coming back for his followers so they may be where he is. Three, Jesus' followers know the way to the place where he is going via the cross. So look at verse 1 of chapter 14. That famous verse, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And what's being presupposed there, of course, uh, is both the sovereignty and goodness of God and of Jesus. God is sovereign. God is good. And so is Jesus. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is good. We can trust him. Which means there is a very, very high Christology being presupposed in this verse, isn't there? Just just think about what Jesus is saying. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus expects to be trusted as God himself is trusted. I keep saying this as I'm preaching through John's gospel, but what other religious figure in history would dare say such a thing as that? Only Jesus, and he expects to be taken at his word. You believe in God, believe also in me. So let your faith be triumphant, Christian, and your spirit tranquil by heeding this truth, spoken by our good and our trustworthy sovereign. Verse 2. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? Jesus is saying, God's house is large. Our Lord is speaking of heaven here. Uh, Heaven isn't some 600-square-foot Toronto apartment where when we put up guests, they're sleeping on blow-up mattresses in the living room. God's house has many rooms, which means he won't run out of space, right? That's the argument. Ample provision has been made. There will never be a no-vacancy sign on heaven's door for the people of God. Not one of Jesus' sheep will ever find themselves on the outside looking in. So, yes, Jesus is departing, But the disciples shouldn't be discouraged or upset by that prospect. Why not? Because Jesus' departure is for the purpose. It's for the purpose of establishing for them permanent dwelling places in the very presence of God. If it were not so, I would have told you. So, cast out all fear. Cast out all nagging suspicion. Jesus says, Christian, you're going to be enjoying the sheer delight... Of forever dwelling in the unshielded radiance of the glory of God. I'm going to see to it. My departure ensures that eternal reality. My departure is for your ultimate good. And that's the long-range perspective we must never lose sight of. It's having this long-range perspective that lends stability to our faith. It fortifies it. Even if we're going through a devastating ordeal. Jesus is not simply advocating a positive mental attitude here. Jesus isn't Joel Osteen, he of the teeth and your best life now. Eight million copies sold. Professing Christians are who's buying those books. Eight million copies sold. Osteen Osteen has one of the uh, largest churches in America. 45,000 people attend every week. But despite superficial appearances, what Osteen preaches is not grounded in the scripture. Osteen's famous seven steps to living at your full potential are as follows. You just, you just, we can just kind of, I think, pick this up in the culture that we're moving through. Here's, you want to live life to your full potential? Here's what Osteen says. Enlarge your vision. Develop a healthy... Self image. Discover the power of your thoughts and words. Let go of the past. Find strength through adversity. Live to give. Number seven, choose to be happy. But, friends, that kind of Pollyanna ish Oprah nonsense is powerless. It's powerless. It only is going to breed self delusion and ultimate despair. That's how someone makes a shipwreck of their Christian faith. It's what i was saying before. So much mental anguish and suffering in the Christian's experience is tied to false expectations. That's nothing but going to be setting you up for false expectations. And Satan exploits those false expectations with great success. And with our worldly hopes dashed. Because we've linked our hope and our joy and future to that new job. To that promotion, better health, to certain kinds of success, to prosperity, to a spouse, to a happy family. When all that fails to materialize, we are spiritually crushed. And then in our discouragement, we're ripe pickings for the evil one. So, what then is Jesus' antidote to this? He wants us to look forward in time, biblical time. He wants us to put on uh, our eschatological sunglasses that tint everything, right, and preach to our heart that our ultimate goal, brothers and sisters, is pure worship in the unrestricted presence of God. That's what we're looking forward to. Because whatever our light and momentary affliction is in this world, that is. Is what's surely coming next, Christian? I want to ask: Do you think much of your eternal destiny secured for you in Jesus Christ? Are you keenly anticipating eternity? When the missionary um, David Brainerd was dying on his—he's on his deathbed, dying of tuberculosis he would often whisper to himself and to those around him, eternity, eternity. That filled him with delight, the prospect of it. Are you keenly anticipating eternity? Are you crying out with the believers in every age, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, return, Lord Jesus? Or, Have you grown too comfortable with the blessings God has already given you? Is your mind prone to dwell on and be held captive by merely earthly things? And if they're taken away or in God's providence, they're actually never entrusted to you in the first place. Disaster. Disaster. Are you losing your taste, Christian, for the finer things? Christians ought to be, uh, I would say, eschatological, last times, connoisseurs. Eschatological connoisseurs. We ought to be like a Michelin restaurant reviewer, those snobs who anonymously and secretly rate the food at the most elite restaurants in the world. According to my Wikipedia research... There are only 120 Michelin inspectors worldwide. I mean, what a gig to get into. That'd be amazing. But they're operating in only 23 different countries, and a three-star Michelin rating is the most coveted seal of approval in the dining world. In all of Canada, there isn't a single restaurant with even a one-star Michelin rating. Although, I just read in blog like yesterday, that that might be changing in the next few months. So... We've arrived at last, but but we ought to be like one of those people, kind of like uh, Anton Ego in uh, Ratatouille. Have you seen that? Yeah, walking into a McDonald's with a McDonald's with pretensions of being worthy of a three-star Michelin rating. Can you imagine? On a certain level, that should be with us. That should be the same case with us, with all things temporal, with all things related to this fleeting passing world those idols satan would use to trouble our heart and discourage us and to shake our faith we're christians right we're living in the truth of verse two with a forward-looking perspective on all of life we don't let our hearts become discouraged because in our father's house there are many rooms and our ultimate goal is pure worship in the unrestricted presence of god 2 Corinthians 4.16 Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary But what is unseen is eternal. But that sort of outlook, of course, is linked with how such a future time reality is going to be assured for us. How it is assured. Sinners living in God's unshielded presence for all of eternity doesn't just happen. It's not just our privilege by rights. God must do something to make it possible. So, What is Jesus actually preparing? And why in the world is it taking him so long? Because what do we read in John's prologue? We read that through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So if the pre-incarnate word is God the Father's agent in creation, if Jesus can just speak and the universe comes into existence, then what's the holdup with preparing some rooms in heaven? Look at verse 2. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. How do we make sense of that? Well, in John's Gospel, jesus the descriptions of, of Jesus' departure, also called his going, his returning to the Father, his glorification, his being lifted up, It all refers to one event. Jesus' return to the Father by way of the cross and resurrection. With all the redemptive significance embraced by his return. Which means, when we read verse 2, Jesus isn't saying, I'm returning to my Father's house so that after I get there, I'll be able to prepare, get a place ready for you. I'll get out my hammer and saw and we're going to start building once I get there. No, he's saying, I'm returning to my father's house in order that this very return, this redemptive journey may be the means of preparing that place for you. So do you see verse three? If I go and prepare a place for you through the cross, through the resurrection, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Verse 4, you know the way to the place where I am going, the cross. And this is the antidote, Christian, prescribed by Jesus himself for a troubled heart that fears God's abandonment in times of trial. This is the recipe for a strong and stable faith. Our strong and And stable faith in Jesus' absence is in proportion to our faith resting in Jesus as in God himself, verse 1. And believing that Jesus' departure via the cross 2,000 years ago was a return to his Father's presence. A return which itself opened up his Father's house to us. Which means we need never fear abandonment, ever. Beloved, I promise you, there is real power in believing the truth of what our Lord teaches here. This will change your life. Because this puts all of life, the good, the bad, the terribly ugly, into its biblical perspective. But there's a second truth which helps to establish triumphant faith in the believer. Jesus is coming back for his followers so that we may be where he is, verse 3. And we just have to read through the text to see how intensely personal this promise is. I am going there to prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me. That you also may be where I am. And and this is the greatest comfort, the greatest joy of the second advent. We will be with Jesus. Forever. Loved ones, hear me. We will become serene and stable in our faith only when we trust Jesus as we trust God. And when we fix our attention, our aspirations, our values on Jesus' return with the blessed prospect of enjoying His presence forever. The Christian's serene, stable, and fortified faith is always grounded in the person of Jesus, sin forgiven in His cross, and the blessed prospect of being with Jesus for all of eternity. And this is a lesson We're wise to learn as soon as possible in our Christian pilgrimage because hardship and suffering is coming, loved ones. It's coming for all of us. It's coming for you. It's coming for your family. Ever since our parents' satanic, anarchistic, autonomous, de-godding revolution in the Garden of Eden suffering has been woven into the fabric of the human experience the world we live in now this is eden's wreckage new city with all its perplexity and pain affliction and evil haunt us affliction and evil stalk us they plague us we live in a fallen fallen world i'm 45 years old and by god's grace I haven't experienced much suffering in my life yet. Uh, I enjoyed an almost idyllic childhood. Not, not all of us can say that. I've never known emotional, physical, or sexual abuse at the hands of my mother or father. My parents loved me. Not all of us can say that. Neither of my parents is a drunkard or abused drugs, I've never been the victim of a violent crime. Uh, I'm married to a beautiful, godly woman who loves me, and by God's grace, we enjoy a good marriage, one that honors God. It's it's fun to be married. I enjoy being married. Not everyone can say that. I'm a healthy man, both physically and mentally. I have the best job ever. I love being a pastor. I'm Canadian. How many billions of people on this planet would give almost anything to say that? But suffering is coming. I just haven't lived long enough. Brothers and sisters, we can't afford to be naive about suffering and evil. Or worse yet, we can't afford to be unbiblical. There are consequences for being the sons and daughters of Adam. Consequences to which born-again Christians are not immune. So, Get ready. Let's get this under our belts now. In that day of hardship, of trial, of persecution, of sheer evil, your faith must be grounded in the person of Jesus, your sins forgiven in his cross, and the blessed prospect of being with Jesus forever. That's our anchor the gospel. Not, our anchor is not, in decontextualized refrigerator magnet verses. Verse 4. You know the way to the place where I am going. Jesus is talking about going to the Father and the way he himself must take in order to get there. And his disciples know the way. Jesus has told them repeatedly of being betrayed, of being lifted up, of going to the Father. Jesus is going to the Father via the cross. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? What do you see Thomas's mistake here? He thinks the way Jesus is taking to get wherever he's going, will also be the way that the disciples take to follow him there. So Jesus stops, he stops talking about his own way to the Father, the cross, and tells Thomas the way the disciples must travel, which is the way all sinners in in need of God's saving grace must travel. Which brings us now to number six of seven I am statements in John's Gospel. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you see how that works? Why context is so important? The way of Jesus to the Father is the cross. The way of the disciples to the Father is is jesus the way of any sinner to god the father is jesus jesus alone but jesus isn't only the way jesus is the truth he's the truth incarnate jesus is full of grace and truth jesus is the true light the true temple and the true bread from heaven i am the way the truth and the life Jesus is God's truth, God's revelation. And Jesus is the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus says to Martha in chapter 11, he says to all of us, I am the resurrection. When you die... When you die, you will come back from the dead in a resurrection body on the last day if you believe in me. But apart from me, there is no resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. That is, whoever believes in me will gain eternal life right now. Even if you die, you will live because through faith in me, you have eternal life. But there is no eternal life outside of me. So exclusively, Jesus is saying, so exclusively am I the provider of resurrection and eternal life that apart from me, there is no resurrection. There is no life. Friends, this triple claim of our Lord's, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, is absolutely staggering. Uh, This isn't the sort of claim that we can just sort of uh, look at quickly and then kind of jump on to the next verse or sweep it under the carpet. No, we want to shine a spotlight on this. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. He does not say, I am one of many legitimate paths to God, and it's up to you to take your pick. Which path best comports with your idea of a good spirituality? Friend, I want to ask, what even constitutes a good spirituality? From my own conversations, it seems the major criterion is based on how it makes the person feel. If the person feels good and closer to the universe or some higher power or if they feel they're learning more about themselves, or if they're being more authentic, then they're practicing a good spirituality. Jesus won't have it. Jesus won't allow it. It's just a blanket statement. No one comes to the Father except through me. Period. Now, now obviously, the people living in a relativistic, postmodern, pluralistic, multi-face society like Toronto, Canada, that sort of exclusivity is tough to swallow. It's downright offensive. Do you recall how, uh, in the past, we talked about Tim Keller's term "defeater belief"? I think it's very helpful. A defeater belief is a belief that defeats other beliefs. It defeats them, right? If you hold a defeater belief. To be true, and whether it is true or not is irrelevant, but if you hold it to be true, then you cannot possibly hold certain other beliefs to be true at the same time. The, the defeater belief rules out other beliefs and thus defeats them. For instance, you might think there are many ways to God, one religion hasn't cornered the market on absolute culture-transcending truth. That's just an arrogant thing to believe, epistemologically. No, so what Jesus says then in in this nasty, narrow-minded verse can't be true. It can't be true. Therefore, my defeater belief of many ways to God simply rules that truth claim out of court. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to think about it. But friends, this verse, this authority claim follows everything that's happened in John's gospel so far. Think of John's prologue. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Think of John the Baptist's testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself... Did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, that is God, told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Or, Jesus turning water into wine, the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Jesus saying, tear down this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it again, speaking of his body. His talk with Nicodemus, you must be born again to see or enter into the kingdom of God. Our Lord's talk with the Samaritan woman, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The multiplication of the loaves. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. Jesus is God's truth and revelation. He is the great I am. He heals a man born blind. He's the good shepherd who in fulfillment of Ezekiel 34 is both Yahweh and in the line of David. He is the one who raises Lazarus from the dead. He is the resurrection and the life. So if everything that we read in those 14 chapters about Jesus is true, and I preach a sermon on every single one of those texts, if all those things historically happened in fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture, then of course salvation is found in no one else. How could it not be? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one else. He alone is the way to the Father because he first took the way of the cross. It's as we saw in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus is indeed the long prophesied eschatological shepherd he is the bread of life the eternal word of god god's ultimate truth and revelation he is the way the truth and the life and it's his gospel alone that saves sinners and friends any teacher any prophet any guru any pastor any pope any mentor any role model who does not confess all this and teach this to the people under their influence or guidance, is a thief. They're a thief. No matter if they're your best friend, or your mom, or an angel from heaven, or even you yourself. They are a thief who comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus couldn't be any more serious about this. Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Full stop. Nothing lacking. No more is required. And to have life and to have it to the full means we know. We know this shepherd. It means we know God. It means our spiritual life is flourishing. And that knowledge of God turns on Jesus dealing with our sin. Through his death and resurrection, and we living with eternity's values in view. Friend, will you believe Jesus? Will you accept this life he alone gives? Let's move now into the final section of this glorious text. New City, the scriptures are abundantly clear God is one. God is one in being, he is one in essence, and yet God eternally coexists in three co-equal and co-eternal persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We confess that this morning with the Nicene Creed. And this is how Jesus can go on to say in verse 7, it's why he says, verse 7, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. But the disciples don't under, haven't come to understand this doctrine yet. They will after Pentecost, once the Spirit is given, but not yet. What they don't understand is that Jesus reveals God the Father, which means they don't understand who Jesus really is. He needs to teach them. Point three, the revelation of the Father in the Son. Verse seven, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. But that's something, the apostle, that just blows the apostles' mind. That's something they, they just can't accept that at face value. So Philip says, verse eight, Lord, show us the Father, show us God the Father, and, and that will be enough for us. That's all we're asking for, Jesus. Just, just give us direct access to the immediate display of God himself. Just usher us into his throne room, and, and, and that'll be enough for us. <laughs> I, 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 can't, I can't help but wondering the tone of Jesus as he responded to Philip in this moment. Uh, was it an exasperated rebuke? A sad rebuke? A patient rebuke? I'm not quite sure how to read this, but don't you know me, Philip? even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Philip, what you've witnessed these past three years as you've lived and traveled with me is nothing less than the revelation of the Father in the Son. It may blow all your monotheistic categories out of the water, but it's true all the same. New City, listen to the scriptures. Hear God's truth. The Father has made himself known in the eternal word who is himself God, but who became flesh. Therefore, whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father, and Jesus exhorts his apostles and us to believe it. Verse 11, believe me, when i say that i am in the father and the father is in me believe what i'm saying is true or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves the miracles because jesus is under no illusion about the power of his miracles to call forth faith this is interesting after the good shepherd discourse in john 10 didn't jesus say verse 37 do not believe me unless i do the works of my father but if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. See, same thing. And in chapter 14, he's offering that same challenge, right? Friend, if, if you're sitting there in your sin, if you're sitting there in your unforgiven sin, the holy wrath of God hanging over your head, hanging by a singed thread, ready to fall upon you for all eternity, then I couldn't care less how you come to a deep, personal faith in Jesus Christ. What God cares about, what I care about, is that there is genuine trust and commitment to Jesus. What's important is that your faith is in the one who reveals the father perfectly, who himself is the way, the truth, and the life. If you come to Christ in genuine faith because you're wooed by the love of Jesus or because of the threat of his judgment, it doesn't matter as long as you genuinely believe If you learn to trust Christ because of the example of other Christians. Or through reading your mother's Bible while you're cleaning out her attic one day with no one to teach you. It doesn't matter. The important thing is that you genuinely believe. You repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. God uses all sorts of means to save his people. Some come to Christ because they're intellectually convinced of the truth through apologetics. Others come because of the impact of his miracles. In my own case, uh, God used a religiously blasphemous movie that I enjoyed watching while high on drugs. Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ. I'd just be high out of my gourd watching Jesus uh, in this movie performing miracles. And, and that the Lord used that to save me. I, w- I would watch... You know, William Defoe as Jesus performing miracles that I, I believe actually historically happened. I was re- rejecting all of his, tr- all his claims over my life, but I said, no, that's, that's God incarnate. Look at him doing those miracles. And just seeing the miracles in this blasphemous, actually, film, that's what wooed me to Christ. Our sovereign, gracious God uses all kinds of means to call his people. We just need to be careful not to elevate one to the position of exclusive supremacy. Like, this is the silver bullet, right? Or, or think that a, a certain method or means is itself sufficient to induce faith. Otherwise, I mean, I'd be giving out hard drugs, everyone I know, and inviting them to my place to watch the last temptation of Christ, because that's how God saved me, right? I've mentioned this before, but Pastor Justin Galati's father-in-law, Richard Gans, he, he's Jewish, and he was saved by a Christian reading to him Isaiah 53. But Rich thought the man was reading a passage from the New Testament, Because obviously it was talking about Jesus, right? He was pierced for our transgressions and so on. And and then the man turned the Bible around and showed him that he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. And he believed instantly. And Rich thought he discovered the silver bullet to Jewish evangelism. So he showed Isaiah 53 to all his Jewish friends and family, convinced that they would all believe in Jesus instantly, just like he did. Not one person believed. Our sovereign, gracious God uses all kinds of means to call his sheep to himself. And so, Jesus, after affirming that he himself is the revelation of the Father incarnated, and after encouraging his followers to believe this truth, he goes on now to speak about the results. In verses 12 to 14, Jesus speaks of two results of believing the fact of the revelation of the Father in the Son. Verse 12, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. So that's the first result, greater works than Jesus has been doing. The second, verse 13, And I will do whatever you ask in my name. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Those are the two things the person who has true faith in Jesus Christ is promised. But we're only going to look at the first promise today. Our sermon is almost over. The second, Lord willing, we'll learn about next week when we come to John 15. Just, let me just give you a sneak peek of where we're going with that. Look at John fifteen seven. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. See, those verses are of a piece with uh, verses 13 and 14. But that's, that's next week. So let's now close with understanding what our Lord means when he says, we will do greater things than Jesus works. What in the world could he mean? What are these greater works he's speaking of? Any guesses? Does it mean that we can now do Jesus one better at, you know, raising the dead, miraculously feeding 5,000 people, walking on water? We'll be performing miracles more sensational? That's pretty hard to imagine. Uh, Notice, Jesus says the greater works will take place because I am going to the Father. That's a very important clue. What do we learn in our Lord's Farewell Discourse, will happen after Jesus returns to the Father, which will not happen unless He returns to the Father. The Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Advocate, will come so that we're not left alone. And with the coming of the Holy Spirit comes the dawn of a new age in salvation history. And in that day, in in this day that we currently Enjoy, brothers and sisters. Whoever believes in Jesus will do the works he has been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. Friends, I know I must sound like a broken record. I sometimes think we could play a a drinking game with how often I mention the man's name. But D.A. Carson is undoubtedly the, the John Scholar in the evangelistic world. And I, I find his take on this verse the most convincing option of everything I read in the commentaries that I consulted for this sermon. This is his take. Both Jesus' words and his deeds were somewhat veiled during the days of his flesh. Even his closest followers, as the foregoing verses make clear, grasped only part of what he was saying. So here's the question. Why? Why was that the case? Why did, why did they only grasp a little bit of what our Lord was saying? What, what salvation historical key was missing in all their interpretations? There's, there's actually quite a few. There's a number, but there's one really, really big one. Jesus always, always spoke in the framework of his cross and resurrection. And what God would accomplish through those things for sin. And that framework was understood by no one. That's the missing key. But Jesus is about to return to the Father via the cross. He's about to be glorified. And along with the Father as again as we confess this morning he's about to pour out the holy spirit upon his new covenant people and in the wake of jesus glorification in the wake of pentecost in acts chapter two his followers will know and make known all that jesus is all that jesus does but always 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 in the context of his cross And his followers, every deed and word will belong to the new age, the last times, eschatological age, that will then have dawned. So do you see? The signs, the works Jesus performed during his ministry could not fully accomplish their true end, not until after Jesus has risen from the dead and been exalted. Only at that point could they be seen for what they truly were and the kind of messiah jesus truly is which is precisely why the disciples are discouraged in verse one they don't understand this at all they don't understand the gospel by contrast the works believers are given to do through the power of the holy spirit after jesus glorification and this is talking about us now brothers and sisters Those works are set in the framework, always, of Jesus' death and triumph, his resurrection, everything that he's been accomplished for sin. And so they will be more immediately and truly, they will more immediately and truly reveal who Jesus truly, truly is. And in consequence, many converts, many more sheep will be gathered into the fold of God than were drawn during Jesus' ministry. Verse 12. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they'll even do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. But it's not just raw numbers Jesus is talking about there. It's the power and clarity in gospel presentation after Jesus goes to the Father and the Spirit comes. That's the contrast, pre- and post-Pentecost. So Christian... Do you have a loved one who is in desperate need of Christ's salvation? Then know this and be encouraged. New covenant believers preach Jesus with greater clarity. We reveal the son more truly and with more power that God might be glorified in the son than Jesus himself did before the cross and resurrection even in his raising Lazarus from the grave, his greatest miracle. Think about that. Those loved ones in our family who so desperately need Christ, do we wait around wishing Jesus would show up and walk on water before their wondering eyes that they might believe? No. We preach the gospel to them. We proclaim to them what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. And we do so... With more clarity than anything the apostles experienced in the whole three years of Jesus' public ministry. So take that post Pentecost reality, a reality we've been enjoying for 2,000 years, brothers and sisters, and turn it from theological abstract knowledge into evangelistic boldness and zeal. Be faithful. Be courageous in your evangelistic witness, Christian. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Amen.